People often ask me which garden is the best in the United States. Regardless of my answer, they tell me that their favorite is Chanticleer, the public garden in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And I know why. Chanticleer is innovative, colorful, maintained impeccably. All in all, I think people love this place because of its stunning beauty. Innovation is what attracts me to Chanticleer. Not every design speaks to me. I don't love them all, but I appreciate the risk of trying new things. And I don't think you can really have art without risk. So many American gardens take their inspiration from the past, and often they do that so literally. When you visit Chanticleer, you see things you've never seen before. They may be initiated by some designs from history, and most of the plants are familiar, but that's where it ends. The gardeners there might say that their work is plant-driven. It's true that plants star in the gardens at Chanticleer, but plants alone cannot explain the allure of this self-described pleasure garden. My guest today is the author, or perhaps editor, or contributor uh, to a new book. It's not about visiting Chanticleer, although that's there too, but the book, The Art of Gardening, uh, it's a a different kind of experience, because uh, unlike just a tour, uh, all of the constructs of this remarkable place, the creators and the curators of the various areas, share their ideas, techniques, tips, motivations, and direction. Whether the garden is plant-driven or not, the photos in the book are. Chandra Claire has been called the gardener's garden, and now we hear from the gardeners. And first, from our guest today, R. William Thomas, the executive director of Chanticleer, and someone I'm going to call Bill. Uh, So hello, Bill. Hello, Ken. It seems to me that the book presents the idea that plants are the muse. If I can say it's not even a plant is the muse, but the plants are the muse for the garden artists. Uh, But before we get into all of that, uh, tell me a little bit about about, I was going to say the history of Chanticleer, but f- tell me a little bit about the history of the book. All right. Tom Fisher from Timber Press uh, approached me maybe four or five years ago and said, you know, let's let's do a book on Chanticleer. And I said, I think that's a great idea. And we kept talking about it for a few years. And, um, and it seemed like the time was right. And uh, the staff was enthusiastic about it. And I thought it'd be a, a good idea, and you've written lots of books, you know. They always <laughs> sound good at the beginning, and then you go through the the pains of writing them, uh, and then, you know, now we're thrilled uh, that the book is out. Uh, but the concept was that the the gardeners are an innovative group. Uh, they're bright, they're very knowledgeable, and they have something to share, and so we wanted to put that out. And I was going to ask you about the history of Chanticleer in a nutshell, but tell me about the history of Bill in a nutshell. History of Bill. Um, I'm a Midwestern boy. I grew up in Wisconsin, studied horticulture at the University of Wisconsin, uh, and then I was hired by Longwood Gardens uh, and had my career there in the education and horticulture departments. And I was there for uh, over 25 years. And um, in 2003, I was offered uh, the chance to be the executive director of Chanticleer, the second director, uh, and I jumped at it. Uh, I've lived now my, my whole adult life in, in the Philadelphia area, and we're, we're calling ourselves America's Garden Capital because there are 31 public gardens in the area, 
more than anywhere else on the continent, and it's a it's a fun place to garden. Uh, I don't know if I've ever said this to you before, but I call it the hotbed of horticulture. <laughs> That's even a better term. Right, yeah, maybe. Um, I know you've written a lot, and you've been a member of Garden Writers for a long time. Uh, what was your role in in the book? I'm saying that because we haven't really discussed it, but the book is actually written by the the people who garden. How did you see yourself in the book, and what did you end up doing? Um, so, in in talking with um, the people at Timber Press, where they they suggested and I agreed that the book in general needed to be one voice, <clears throat> even though it was a number of people uh, contributing. And I really wanted it, and as did they, to be the gardeners who are who are talking and who are. <clears throat> Uh, doing the book, writing the book, sharing their uh, their knowledge and experiences. And so what we came up with was that everyone would contribute. I would, as the coordinator and editor, put it together into one voice. Uh, and then as I was working on that, there were some areas that it just seemed silly to try to rewrite what the gardener had uh, put down on paper and instead... Um, so we've used those as little essays throughout the book. And mm -hmm. so you'll see Lisa Roper or Emma Seniunk or Jonathan Wright. Um, each of the gardeners has little essays in there where they're talking directly to the to the reader. I wish we could have a big panel discussion on the stage someplace with a big audience in two hours to talk to every <laughs> single one. And I want to ask so many questions. That's a great idea. We're talking about Jana Claire as if everybody knows what that is. <laughs> and uh, m maybe start with a little bit of the history of Jana Claire because it is unique. Uh, and I said public garden. At the, when I say public garden about Jana Claire, I, I always choke because it's not like any other public garden. And I don't mean just the way it looks. I mean, it's not open every day. You don't have weddings, as far as I know. Nope. <laughs> Tell me a little <laughs> bit right. about the history. So Chanticleer was the uh, Rosengarten estate. The Rosengartens uh, bought the property in 1912, uh, and the family lived here until 1990. Uh, they had a, a pharmaceutical firm in Philadelphia that merged with Merck in the 1920s. They had two children, and the son, uh, a son and the daughter, and the son, Adolf Rosengarten Jr., uh, loved the property, and so when he died in 1990, he left it to be a public garden. Um, the, in 1990, when he passed away, it was 31 acres, and it was mainly lawns and beautiful trees. Uh, he did not restrict how the garden would be developed, and so under the leadership of the first director, Chris Woods, uh, and a very talented staff that he hired, um, the garden went in, uh, changed greatly. It became much more interesting, I'd say horticulturally, uh, many more herbaceous plants, a lot of non-hardy plants. Um, and I think of Chanticleer as uh, a contemporary garden in a historic setting. So there's some beautiful uh, historic structures here, uh, historic meaning going back to the early part of the 20th century. Um, <clears throat> but the plantings are, are new, although we still have wonderful trees and also beautiful lawns. You said something that I think is is one of the unique things about the garden. There was no directive to freeze it. 
you had some beautiful trees. You said that uh, it it wasn't the garden that it is today, but to to inherit something that has you know you can do what you want to do to make a pleasure garden. You don't have to keep the lawns. You don't even have to keep the buildings the way they were. Um, some of some of Chanticleer when I visit, like if I go to the porch, well, sometimes I've gone to the porch. I don't know. Is that what you call the porch next to the house? Yeah, we say sun porch. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I go to the sun porch. There are people sitting there on upholstered furniture, and I want to take a picture. And if and I just stand there, and they they won't move. They are the weekend <laughs> guests of the of the family. You know, they think they're home. They think they're there for the weekend, really. And that's a, that's one aspect of Santa Clara, but uh, there are so many others. The board uh, early on set up the idea that we were to keep the feeling of a private garden. And so that's just what you're, you're alluding to, that um, you can come here and you can feel like you're a personal guest of the uh, of the Rosen Gardens. Uh, and I like that idea very much. Well, Yes, <laughs> and that feeling is there. Only you have walked into an amazing place. I was going to say it's almost like being a private guest on the Starship Enterprise, <laughs> because it's there's nothing like it. Tell me a little bit about the areas and and what people see when they come to visit. Well, let, let's say we we parked and we're going to go to the teacup garden, which I, you know, people talk about all parts of the of Santa Clara and the teacup garden which is if you park there is one of the first things they mention tell me a little bit about you walk into the teacup gardens what is the teacup garden okay the teacup garden is uh, i mentioned that there were two children uh, the rosen gardens had two children each received a house as a wedding present so the house at our entrance is was built for emily rosen garden uh, when she married uh, samuel goodman in 1935 and the teacup garden is on the south side of the house. It's a terrace on the south side of the house that has a, a small fountain in it. We call it a teacup fountain. It's a <clears throat> fairly simple um, um, three-foot-tall fountain where water pours off over the sides into a saucer. Uh, it doesn't look like a teacup that I've ever drunk out of, but it's <laughs> you could call it a teacup. Um, it's a south-facing terrace. Uh, we do a spring display in there that's different every year, but um, uh, this year we used a lot of uh, lettuces and um, and mustards, colored foliage, plants that can tolerate uh, cool temperatures. And then we went into a summer display that featured fig trees and olives uh, and uh, some non-hardy ground covers under it. And again, the summer display always is every year um, because it's a warm area it's uh, early to warm up in the spring and late to frost in the fall and we take advantage of that uh, and then during the summer months use a lot of non-hardy plants it, it always it changes every year and, and maybe people get a little idea lettuces and mustards yes now some years we've done tulips um, but uh, so the idea is, you know, as as we all know, uh, as gardeners, in you you've got to plant with your with your climate and with the season. And so we open we're closed in the winter months. Uh, we generally open around uh, the first of April, and we can have frost uh, throughout the whole month of April. And so we need plants that can tolerate chilly weather, 
but we can also go up into the high 80s uh, during that time, and so we need plants that can will do a good show. And one of the great things about lettuces and mustards uh, and some and Swiss chard, for that matter, uh, those are plants that have beautiful foliage. Um, and foliage, we use foliage throughout the garden for its color and texture. And dealing with leaves rather than flowers, you get a much longer display, much more bang for the buck, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the the plantings are, as you're saying this, I'm thinking exuberant. Uh, it's yes. a, it's incredibly colorful. The if you're a plant geek like I am, you it's plant geek heaven. And you you see things there. You said 80s. I think it's like 120 in the Philadelphia area. Perhaps it's the humidity, but uh, the plantings are are so exuberant. So so let's say you've hit the restroom. You've seen the teacup garden. And I want to remind people I'm speaking to Bill Thomas, who is the executive director of Chanticleer, a pleasure garden in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and a contributor to a new book. Uh, And we're talking about the art of gardening. And... um, now let's say we go to the tennis court, and when I when I think of the tennis court, I think of, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a former tennis court, and you you walk down to into it, and there's there's stairs, and the railings on the stairs are planted, and the plants are all kind of overscaled. It's and don't go without a notebook, <laughs> although you won't see many labels. I don't think you have any labels, do you? We do have some of the trees labeled. Um... And the, but we have plant lists in every garden area, um, and with photographs of some of the plants, the ones we think people will most likely ask about. Um, you, as a plant geek, will ask about plants that are more unusual, and there we have maps and plant lists um, <clears throat> to be able to identify the plants. And the tennis court indeed was a tennis court. It was a clay court up until 1990. Uh, my friends who are great tennis players always look a little wistful when they come up to the tennis court because they think they're going to be able to play tennis. Um, but all the plant people are very happy that it's now a garden. Uh, well, I certainly am. Um, maybe to give uh, people an idea of some unexpected things before we get to the most unexpected thing, I suppose. Um, the, the Serpentine Garden, tell me a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. So the Serpentine was... Um, developed uh, originally by my predecessor, Christopher Woods. Uh, it was after a trip to Tuscany, and he was uh, he fell in love with the hillsides, the Tuscan hillsides, uh, how beautiful the agriculture was, how um, uh, Italian cypresses uh, set them off as sculptural pieces, and how wonderful the meadows and the olive orchards were. Um, or the and they were with the meadows uh, underneath the olive trees, so he he decided to bring a little Tuscany to Chanticleer. Uh, we've changed it over the years, but we uh, we have curving beds uh, instead of Italian cypresses. We have junipers, uh, and instead of olive trees, we have silver-leaved willows that we prune to look like olive trees. And in the serpentine itself, uh, which gets its name because the beds are very curving, uh, we plant something agricultural there every year. Um, this year we did artichokes for the first time, uh, and actually we had an abundance during the month of June of artichokes. Hmm. I think I'm the only staff member who didn't get tired of eating them. 
Uh, we shared them with food pantries and a uh, shelter nearby. <clears throat> uh, so I hope they got to love artichokes as well. Uh, for next year, we're, we've planted uh, rapeseed. Uh, and so in uh, April, May, that should bloom yellow. Right. And when I go, well, the times I've been there, it's often been grains. So it's uh, amber waves of grains. Yeah. Uh, and the, it's, the serpentine, it feels like a maze. I know it isn't really a maze, but uh, just walking through it, it feels like you're walking through a maze of waving tan plants. It's just so beautiful. You you mentioned silver-leafed willows. Can you tell me what that is? So um, it's a, a cultivar of white willow or Salix alba, and mm-hmm. it's the cultivar Britsiensis, which has red twigs in the winter. Oh, yeah. Um, and and the leaves are, are fairly narrow, uh, and they're, they're silvery gray in color. And olive trees are silvery gray in color, and so it really does have the effect, the foliar effect of olive trees, but none of the wonderful fruit. And, and they're, they're permanent, even though you're pruning them. Yes, they're permanent, um, and willows, as you know, root very easily. And so what we did was we we stuck branches from we took cuttings from trees that were in the area, stuck them in pots. Um, in some cases, we put three branches in one pot, let it root, then we planted them out, and then we braided them together to, oh to make the tree look older. Um, because when you go to Tuscany and you look at an old olive tree, it's often hollow in the middle, and there are often several uh, trunks. And uh, so we were going for that that effect. And I know that cultivar has incredible winter color, but I guess nobody's going to see it. <laughs> we're not yes visitors. And no. So mm-hmm. Yes, we, we do have some classes during the winter months. So oh, we, good. Um, this month. Uh, November, we've, um, we just had one class last Saturday, and we'll have another one on the, the 21st. But also, Ken, we, we prune the trees in March uh, when they're full, full color uh, wonders, and, and we stick those branches um, in containers, and they give us, when we open them the end of March, um, the twigs are still colorful, and we, we train sweet peas up on them. Sometimes we just have the branches um, to show off. Uh, we often will plant spring flowers underneath them. So they give our spring containers height, which is difficult to have uh, in the spring. Everything is, tends to be low. Well, uh, I want to talk about the pond. I want to talk about, <laughs> about the gravel <laughs> garden. And I, I know we're running out of time. And I want to assure people listening that we're going to have some pictures from Chanticleer and from the from the new book, The Art of Gardening by the Gardeners, and the executive director of Chanticleer, the P- Pleasure Garden in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And uh, we'll have some pictures of the things we've talked about and maybe a few other things. And on the Ken Drews Real Dirt website, you can just go to kendrews.com. <clears throat> and I I really want people to visit Chanticleer, but I think we're turning them on a little bit. And when the when we uh, we're I'm about to say Lotus, <laughs> <laughs> and it, when you see the pond and it's just completely filled, or I hope it is still filled with, just filled with Lotus and yes. everything is well. There the there's that word exuberant again. It's just it's not over the top. It's it's. Uh, it's burnishing the top. <laughs> <laughs> Great. We do have the, 
we do have a pond area. It's at the uh, far western end of the, the garden. And uh, there are actually five ponds. The largest pond, which is the lowest one, is a clay bottom. And we have lotuses in that that come into bloom in mid-July and bloom uh, well through August. And uh, lotuses are just wonderful. We have, we have people who call every year asking if the lotuses are in bloom yet because they want to make sure they come and see them. Uh, yeah, I'd call and say, uh, are the seed pods uh, up? <laughs> or the, oh, you have to yes. be there all the time, unfortunately. You almost can be if you go on the days that it's open. And, of course, people will go on your website. We'll have a link on our website, too. And I guess the most risky thing at Janet Glare is the ruin. And I remember when they were talking about the making it a ruin, and they there were three dwellings, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, on the property, and one of them was going to be partially torn down to be a ruin, and it turned out that it wasn't going to be safe that way. It was a stone, mostly stone house, a big house. And so uh, I'll say you, meaning all of the people involved with Shannon Clarence before you're, you were there, uh, built a ruin. And the, the ruin, uh, I don't know, when I first saw the ruin, I thought, well, this is going to look great in about 100 years because <laughs> it was brand spanking, shiny, new and uh, people people love the rune, and of course I'm I'm a huge fan of Marsha Donahue, and there's a lot of Marsha Donahue sculpture uh, in the ruin. There's a library with books that she's carved. There's a fountain that's very strange uh, with faces in the water, but people love it. And Marsha isn't carving stone anymore, so you have some of her greatest works of her whole mm -hmm. life there, including those humongous acorns stop me interrupt me <laughs> <laughs> so yes so the ruin uh, is on the site of adolf rosengarten jr's house uh it was a house in the middle of the property and we frankly didn't have a good use for it um, my predecessor chris woods was very bold and took the house down um turned out that he, he wanted to partially take it down but that uh, as you mentioned was not structurally sound so the house was totally taken down, and then the ruin was built to look as if the house fell into disrepair, which it never did. Um, this was back in 2000. Um, I started in 2003. I think Chris actually wanted it to stay looking new uh, for a, a number of decades. He, he, and it is a beautiful structure, um, but I like I I felt it needed to look more like it was 100 years old, and so we've covered it in plants. Um, we're now taking plants away because I think we maybe overdid it in covering <laughs> it with plants. Um, but it's a it was a very bold, uh, exciting move uh, by taking down the house. The house became part literally part of the garden, uh, and it's uh, many people. It's their for many people. It's their their favorite part of the garden. Uh, yes, I've heard that. <laughs> S someday we'll talk. <laughs> uh -huh. I just want to thank you so much for being my guest today. And I, I want to tell people I'm recommending The Art of Gardening. Uh, and there are other publications on Shanna Claire. I think this should just be one in your collection because this is very specific. And uh, we didn't mention Rob Cardillo's photographs. And I'm always surprised when I give a lecture if I show 
a whole lot of plants. People love it. They, I get a little bored, but people just love to, they can see plant after plant after plant after plant. And if you're a plant geek and if you want to see a lot of plants and also the beautiful designs of the gardens at Chanticleer, you can see it in the Art of Gardening. And Bill, thanks so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me here. If you're in the Philadelphia area visiting some of the remarkable world-class institutions there, uh, be sure to put Chanticleer on your list, but be sure also to check their website. There's a link here on the Ken Drew's Real Dirt website because this is not a nine to five, six or seven day a week open tourist site. The gardens are not open year round and not even every day of the week. Well, this new book, The Art of Gardening, is innovative in some ways, like the gardens of Chanticleer. For one thing, it's tall, and I like that because it conforms to the format of the photographs and they don't have to be cropped. But the other thing is that we're eavesdropping on the voices of the gardeners who make this place. Don't you wish you could get a tour of every public or private garden and learn from the garden maker what goes into the design and the plant choice and the plant combinations and what helps those plants thrive? Join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, Gardening 2.0.